Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 506 for January 28, 2023. Welcome back. Tonight we talked to Tim Wise. He is uh, finish up our conversation with him. He's a civil rights activist who really, you know, developed his um, his um, style of activism when he was in Louisiana, um, and um, I think he was part of the anti-David Duke uh, push um, back in the day. After graduating from college, he threw himself into social justice efforts full-time as youth coordinator and associate director of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism. Sad that we have to have an organization against Nazis. <laughs> um, Nazis are not your friend, folks. <laughs> Nazi schmazi, yes. So uh, he, was, he was again it, which is good. Um, and he began focusing on public housing in New Orleans. And so a, a lot of these themes are part of his work till this day. So we look forward to finishing our chat with him. But first, this week in Louisiana history... So <clears throat> this week in Louisiana history on January 27th, 1730, Jean-Paul Le leads 500 Choctaw Indians against the Natchez Indians. Was this a retaliatory attack after the Natchez right. Massacre or whatever it was called? Yeah, the uh, Natchez Massacre, I think they call it. What had happened was um, the French had set up Natchez. It was originally part of um, the you know one of the earlier settlements in louisiana the uh yeah colony. like like uh like um biloxi and like natchitoches you know all yeah. three of those really, really and also mobile are all four very very old yes and um they started from what i understand you know well we've been told this in our interviews um that um the french started encroaching on a native american land that had not been ceded to them and some of it was, um, you know, burial ground, sacred. And so uh, uh, <clears throat> the Indians saw themselves as really fighting kind of a defensive, uh, striking a defensive blow, but that's not the way the Europeans saw it. So, so that's where uh, the, uh, I guess they rounded up Choctaw. And this was a common European uh, approach too, to get the, tribes to fight against each other based on their traditional uh, antipathy rather than, you know, them joining together to throw out. Right, the, to fight the European. Yeah. yeah, to fight the invaders, right. Well, it made sense because, quite frankly, I mean, when you have a local population or the indigenous population that outnumbers the Europeans, you know, God knows how many to one, uh, it makes sense to do that. Um, you know, divide and conquer. It's, it's a variation right. of that. right. Now for this week in New Orleans history, Lindell Holmes defeated or, Frank. Or Louisiana history right now. What's that? Oh, what's yeah, that? Got, well, I'm sorry. That's my fault. Yeah, this week in New Orleans history. Go ahead. <laughs> sorry. Uh, this week in New Orleans history, Lindell Holmes defeated Frank Tate for the Super Middleweight International Boxing Federation title in New Orleans on January 27th, 1990. Um, 
Well, those, those uh, titles going for quite a while, don't they? Well, now for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the Pineville Mardi Gras Parade, the Night of Lights. Join us Friday, February 10th at 7 p.m. for the 2023 Night of Lights Pineville Mardi Gras Parade. Join several thousand of your closest friends and watch the floats go by. The parade rolls from the front entrance of the LCU uh, campus down Main Street to Alexandria. This is on Main Street in Pineville. Uh, again, 7 till 9 p.m. The admission is free. The phone number is 318 449 I'm sorry, 5650. And there is a website. Uh, I guess they'll have concessions and all that kind of thing out too, probably. Does it say? Possibly. I mean, most of the Mardi Gras parades I've been to, they haven't had a lot in the way of um, like food trucks and stuff. Um, I guess sometimes you'll have them, but. Uh, I don't remember seeing them. Usually, people bring their own snacks. I think, um, and and it's we not went like to the, all day parades in New Orleans. They don't go. On we that. went to the big one in Monroe. They have one over there that stretches a pretty good ways. I think it starts in West Monroe and runs across the Louisville Bridge. So yeah, it's, it's a nice several. one. I used to take Kirk. Yeah, I was a big one when he and, lived. And up I went here. with my old friend Melinda once, actually a couple of times, and I'd meet her over there and. Uh, we actually had to, because we, we, we did it on the West Monroe side of the bridge, and we actually had to go into downtown West Monroe just to get something to eat or snack on, I think, before we went and had dinner. Because, yeah, it, I don't think there were, there may have been some food trucks out, but if they were, they weren't easily accessible because all the lines of people. So we just went into like a little, like a convenience store or something there in downtown West Monroe or, you know, some little place and got, right. I think, got something to drink, and that was it. Yeah. So anyway, Lots of fun. There'll be some throws, you know, just your typical Mardi Gras parade. And we'll be talking about more of these in the weeks ahead. Now for this week's postcard from Louisiana. I listened to uh, a band play at the Tickler's Piano Bar on Bourbon Street.
interview with Tim Wise. Right, right. And it doesn't matter. All the things that we were told, I mean, I, you know, I remember being there after, uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the mid-90s, and uh, when Foster was the governor, and you had all these people, oh, that's going to that's gonna clean it up, and then Bobby Jindal and all these people, they're going to fix it. And they, they didn't fix anything. Like, none of those problems went away. Because no. they, they didn't have any solutions for any of those problems. And, and so... At the end of the day, all those things that you were talking about, what busted up schools, well, Louisiana is still at the bottom of the barrel when it comes to education. Uh, crime rates, the highest crime rate year after year. Well, actually, Alaska has the highest violent crime rate, but there's you know particular reasons for that that have to do with the fact that it's you know remote and and isolating and everything else. But but in the in the lower 48, Louisiana has the highest violent crime rate year after year in spite of having the highest incarceration rate or one of the highest incarceration rates per capita. So you can lock a bunch of people away. You can, you can virtually enslave folks if you want at a place like Angola. You could do all that. You can have brutal cops that acknowledge, that get caught on tape talking about profiling, that get busted for brutality every couple of years. I mean, hell, in the 90s when New Orleans was the murder, murder capital of the United States in 1994, um, had, I believe, 300 and, 90 or 400 murders that year, uh, and it was the, it led the country. Um, it wasn't it wasn't because the cops weren't brutal. 
I mean, they, they literally had a cop arrested that year for calling out a hit on a woman that reported him for brutality. And then he just oh, literally had her murdered. You know, I mean, so, so, so you could be brutal. You can do all those things that these right wingers say will solve the problem. If we can just beat up criminals again, if we can just, if we can just go in and kick ass in the community and unleash the cops and, and yeah. lock people away, everything, what Louisiana has done that. Year in and year out, generation in, Louisiana ought to be the safest, and New Orleans in particular ought to be the safest city in the <clears> safest <throat> state in the country, and it's not. And and so ask yourself, work certainly would be, you know, the, yeah, put money true. from schools to jails and everything would be great. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. for some people, right, right, right. Yeah, it's always got a caveat on it. I mean, I keep posting this on Facebook, <clears throat> particularly on the right, but even some of our, and I'm not talking about lefties, but I'm talking about our so-called liberal friends that say, yeah. you know, that they'll extol the virtues, again, of neoliberalism yeah. and corporate capitalism and all this. And I keep saying, and this is to quote Bernie Sanders, who's a good example of this in, in modern America of really pushing for some form of social democracy. But I'll always say something like freedom for the 1% is tyranny for the 99%. Or prosperity right. for the one percent is poverty for the ninety nine percent, and those are good pithy ways to put it. Right, right. Well, I mean, yeah. There's, there's, there's a look. You cannot. I mean, you can't get wealthy, really wealthy, in this country from your own labor. It's not possible. Yeah. There are only twenty four hours in a day, and most people need to sleep at least six. So. On a good, you know, if, if you're really lucky, you got 18 hours a day that you could work, and if and you could work every single one of them. You, you, I don't care what, how, how bright you are, how smart you are, you're never going to be Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk wealthy based on your own labor. You can only get that wealthy by having other people work for you. Because you have the power to get them to do so, and and right. and uh, the ability to hire them, and then not only do you hire them, but then you take from them part of what they're doing for you, and you keep it yourself. I mean that that and that's and although that yes is that Marxism, yeah, but Adam Smith said it too. I mean the difference exactly. is, you know, <laughs> Adam Adam Smith has called it value added. And Marx called it surplus uh, wage of capital, the, uh, the surplus wage of la uh, surplus labor. But they are the same concept. It is exactly. the idea that the the owner will extract value. So I work for you, and I I produce something for you that's worth ten dollars, and you pay me five, or you pay me a dollar, right. or you pay me seven, or whatever. And the part that you take, which you didn't do anything for, right. You get to keep it, and that's called profit. Now, now, if one wants to defend that system, okay, fine. Putting aside, putting aside whether it's good or bad, one can make the argument: Well, hell, if we didn't have something like that, nothing would get produced. Okay, we could argue that all day. I'm not interested in that debate. Put that over to the side for a second. At least let's acknowledge something. Whether or not you think it's a legitimate system, let's just at least acknowledge that is the system, right? And what that means is that, by definition, the rich can't get rich without the poor. Right. Exactly. Like that's the point. Now, if you want to defend that and say, "Well, that's just the price we pay for civilization," all right. Well, that's a different debate. But let's not pretend that the rich got rich because they're just that smart. Because right. that isn't how they got rich. They got rich because they had the power to to exploit or extract. 
exactly. for that term, the labor of other people. And whether that was being done visa land theft and enclosure, whether that was being done through enslavement, whether that was being done through the extraction of natural resources, whatever it might be, it, it is a fundamentally exploitative relationship. And it I is. just and if we just understand that, then we can debate, well, all right, maybe it's the maybe it's the only best option. All right, we can debate that. But but the problem is we don't even want to acknowledge that that is how people get wealthy. And so you can look at someone like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg or any of these folks and sort of revere them rather than saying, wait a minute, there's not something to be revered here. Even if I understand this system as something that, you know, maybe I can't just throw out completely tomorrow, I at least need to understand the nature of its operation so that I can right. figure out how to create the most justice possible within it, even as I'm trying to figure out how we might replace it. But if you don't even want to stare it in the face, what you end up doing is you you, you lavish you take someone like Musk or Bezos or Zuckerberg or whomever and or the Walton family and and you lavish even more goodies on them right yep. not 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 because of the market by the way but just because they have enough power to command those tax cuts yep. to demand that differential rate for capital gains versus labor wages like like so you just give them more you give those who have even more of what they had you know it's like the bank that 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 charges you a uh, um a bounce check fee when you don't have any money in the bank. Like, that's right. crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know I don't have any money. So you just charge me more of it. But then if I if I got a lot of money in the bank, you give me, like, the best interest rate. You give me, like, like, all these perks. You let me withdraw money whenever I want. You let me bounce a check, and you send me a nice little note that says, uh, you know, it's okay. We, we, we sure, we're sure you have it. Just, you know, move money over from this account to that account. So the people that have, you just keep giving more to, and then, and then they get credit for having more than they had last week. Well, but no, you gave that to them. Like, you, you literally said, like, here, have more. And then the person that didn't have anything, every time they make a mistake, you, you know, if, if you hit them with a fine for jaywalking or not having a taillight that works, so you hit them with a, with a fine and a fee that they can't pay, and then you keep adding interest to it, and then you keep adding more interest to it, and then you find them in contempt, and then you send out an arrest warrant. Like, it, it's just, you know... It, it, it's this never-ending cycle. It has very little to do with virtue. You know, it has everything to do with, with who has power and who doesn't have it, and that tends to look a certain way, obviously economically. It also tends to look a certain way racially in, in terms of sex and gender. Well, it also is right. It also right. is trying to end cash bail in Louisiana. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you can see the pushback on that already, uh, usually on the part of people who, you know, want to play to the fears that people have of what will happen if you don't keep people locked up awaiting trial. Uh, they don't even care about the constitutional implications of keeping people locked up. They don't care about whether or not the person, I mean, a great example, you know, is, is and I feel bad picking on him because he's, he's sort of an easy target, right? But Herschel Walker, like two weeks ago, at a rally in Georgia, you know, makes this comment that, you know, these people that want to get rid of cash bail, don't they understand people have to be held accountable for their actions just like Adam and Eve? All right, well, putting aside the ridiculousness of that story, like, <laughs> like, like, like the fact that you're – so, okay, but here's the, here's the difference. At least if the story's real, like Adam and Eve did eat the fruit. Right, <laughs> like, like they they did eat the fruit, so they did the thing, and we know they did the thing. God saw them do the thing. That's what the story says. 
So holding them accountable, whether or not it makes any damn sense at all to kick them out of the garden for plucking an apple, is a whole different issue. But and it makes you know God into an awfully uh, horrific taskmaster. But but the point is, at least they did something. If I'm on, if I'm locked up awaiting trial, you haven't proved that I did anything yet. You know, you 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 haven't actually demonstrated my guilt. So you're saying I should be held accountable before you prove me guilty of anything. Not after. At least if it's after. I mean, I, I would argue that very few people, even who are found guilty of crime, really need to be incarcerated. That's a very small percentage of people, in my opinion, that would need to truly be locked up for some period of time. But 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 certainly to do it before the person has been found guilty of something uh, makes no sense at all. And the fact that we've got courts that are trying to increasingly use these algorithms, you know, to to determine who are we going to release. Well, we're going to base it on on aggregate data from the zip code. Oh, well, the, you know, in this zip code. <laughs> That's fundamentally discriminatory. <laughs> well, of course, by definition, because I could be someone who's who's only broken one law, and maybe, you know, maybe I got caught for some weed, or maybe, you know, I had a drunk driving arrest or a public intoxication or something, and I might not have any other record, but you're telling me that if I come from this part of the city where other people happen to have more arrest, which and we could get into a debate about why they got arrested so many times right. too, and are they are they really dangerous? But but even if they were, like you're just saying, because I'm so and so's cousin and I live in the same block, that that you can therefore hold me, you know, as opposed to if you're one of the kids that I went to college, the biggest drug dealer in all of the of uptown New Orleans, I know for a fact, the biggest weed dealer when I was a freshman at Tulane, was lived next door to me in the dorm in, in Monroe Hall at Tulane. And he was a kid from Long Island, and he was bringing in, like, pounds of weed every week or something uh, into New Orleans International Airport. He was one of the biggest dealers around. And, and yet if he gets arrested, which he did not, but if he did get arrested, you would say, yeah, but he lives in 70118. And that zip code doesn't have a lot of recidivism, so we're going to let him out. So that's that's how you're going to make the decision, you know. And 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 then we wonder why uh, you have entire neighborhoods that remain high crime neighborhoods. Well, it's because you've emptied them out, and then you send people back to them who've been locked away for three years, and they might end up pleading out. They might end up being found not guilty. They might end up being released because. Uh, COVID, you know, they had to, they had to like let so drop some of the charges on certain people and let people out because they had no choice. So you just held somebody for three years, but now they got to go out and get a job. Well, good luck, right? Now they got to go out and get some kind of public service, but they can't access that public service because they have a spot on their record. You know, now they 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 can't find employment because two thirds of all employers, when asked, say that they would never knowingly hire someone with an arrest record. So now you're encouraging them to lie on the application. But if I catch you lying, then you can't get the job, and you can, and you might be on probation. I think they can probably arrest you again for that. So I mean, it just it, it pre-programs everybody for failure. And, of course. And I know you've read the. I, I finished. I actually read earlier this year uh, Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow. Sure. Which is, I wish she had. Now, my only fault, fault with the book was that she didn't, to me at least, spend enough time on ju- the juvenile system because I've worked with some of these kids. Oh sure. But, I mean, in, in all honesty, it's a good book, and you know, for the listeners yeah. that haven't read it, I'd still give it a very high rating. <laughs> my, oh sure. My, my oh, quickie sure. reviews, I'd give it probably three and a half or four star out of four. Oh sure. My, again, my only fault was the the fact of the the lack of you know attention to the juvenile system because that's where all this all starts. Oh, that sure. being said, 
I mean, yeah, we're, I saw a report about a guy, and it squares right with what Michelle Alexander said and also what you're saying. He was talking, <clears throat> this was in the wake of Freddie Gray's killing by the Baltimore, was it Baltimore police? Yeah, it was. And he was pointing out the fact that he couldn't get a job. I guess he was maybe from the same neighborhood as in East Baltimore. Anyhow, he's from the same area in Baltimore where Freddie, Gay, uh, Freddie Gray resided. Right. And he said, you, you talked to me about you know, getting ahead in life. He was telling this to a news reporter. He said, how can I when I can't, I don't even have transportation. And he right. said, we need public transit to this part of Baltimore so we can, you know, take a train or take a subway uh, out to other parts of town where there are jobs. He said, I can't get to a job except, you know, a bicycle on foot or on a bicycle. Right, right, you know, right. Well, that was hamstrung from the very start. In other words. Well, and that was a problem in, in, in New Orleans uh, that people didn't understand when Katrina hit. You know, I remember... You know, there was always we do have this tendency in the culture to just sort of blame blame people on the bottom just because they're there, right? And so, yeah. so when the city was hit, the whole Gulf Coast was hit, and the cities emptied out, and people, there was about thirty six hours of compassion, as I recall, and and somewhere around hour thirty seven, certainly by the second day and the third day, that had started to turn to real judgment and resentment, and and people are looking at these images of mostly black folk at the Superdome and the convention center. And they're seeing what they want to see, right? They're seeing not, you know, desperate people that are, that, that had no way to get out of town, but they're seeing lazy people in their mind who chose not to get out of town. Then you had all these narratives going around. Well, they were waiting for their first of the month check, you know, the last couple, last couple of days of August, uh, beginning of September, and they couldn't leave before they got their check. Well, the reality is that at the time Katrina came in, there were only 4,800 black folks in the entire city of New Orleans out of several hundred thousand black folks in the city. That were receiving so-called cash welfare from the government. I mean, that's that's how many. With 4,800 people, not 4,800 families, not 4,800 people. I'm sorry, it was 4,800 households, but still, out of several hundred thousand households, you had a very small percentage that were even getting that stuff. But the narrative was so in place. Well, these are lazy people, and they just they live off the government. The reality was a huge number of black folks in the city, including the ones in public housing. Yeah, they're getting subsidized housing. Most people think people in public housing don't pay anything. That's not true. You pay one-third of whatever your income is, approximately. It isn't free, you, you, unless you are completely on full disability or retirement, you know, which is different. But if you, if you are not disabled and elderly, you are going to pay up to one-third of your income. Now, is it cheaper? Yeah, because it's not on the market. It's, it's, it's below market rate, but you're still expected to pay. So we have all these narratives, and they said, well, if they didn't want to work, that's why they didn't leave. They, 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 they sat around waiting for somebody to save them, but the truth is New Orleans at the time of Katrina had the, had one of the lowest rates of car ownership, personal household uh, automobile ownership of any major metropolitan area in the United States. And if you'd lived there, you'd know that. Like if you actually spend time in New Orleans, you know that people were commuting. A- average commute time for a black person in the city of New Orleans was, was 45 minutes each way each day. Now they might not have even been going far. They might have been going from you know, the seventh ward uh, up into Central City, or they might have been going from like the lower ninth ward into into uh, 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 the French Quarter, but they had to get on a bus and then transfer to this other bus, or they had to walk, or they had to, or they had to, you know, get on a, a streetcar if it was on the streetcar line or whatever. If it was uptown, it, it just took time because the infrastructure for public transportation was so underfunded that if you didn't have a car. You were waiting for buses for long periods of time. You were waiting for streetcars for long periods of time. Or in some cases, you were having to get a bike or you were having to walk. Um, and, and it, but if you don't understand that, if, if you assume that every neighborhood has got the same 
access or the same obstacles as your neighborhood, right, then you will judge those who live differently than you live. And that's what we see in places like New Orleans. It does seem to be a real problem. Uh, people don't want to hear other people's stories. And, and, I, and I, one of the areas I studied in graduate school was narratology, the story, I mean, the study of story or narrative. And yeah. there's a truism among narratologists that we are our stories. Yeah, and for if sure. we don't listen to other people's stories, what, what's inevitably going to happen? A lot of people. Right. Right. Even you were talking about narratology when we got cut off. Yeah, yeah, just the idea of the story. You know, we are our stories. Yeah. And unless if we are willing to listen to other people's stories, we're going to have problems. I mean, we're seeing that right now. We're right. seeing that all over this country, not just in the events of January 6th, but in all kinds of other events where we're we're not listening to people's stories. And, again, look look what happens. I mean, that's really the – you know, Dr. King even said that about, you know, what, yeah. what was it about the the crowd, the – the poor person or something. Anyhow, they, anyhow the, the point was that it's going to erupt in violence. And he's talking oh, about stories there. Of course. Yeah, I, I think we don't um, we don't learn to, first off, we don't learn to tell our stories, and we certainly don't learn to listen to other people's stories. And, in fact, even those of us who do this work, we fall into that. I mean, you know, there are times when I myself can very easily recall, and it still happens from time to time, I, it's very easy for me and other sort of professional activist educator-type lefties to fall into a very sort of, uh, not academic, but just overly intellectual modality of explaining this stuff, right, and, and, and making it very heady and theoretical and using terms and constructs that are very grad-level, you know, grad-school-level stuff, rather than breaking a lot of these concepts down in ways that just anyone can understand them. And so we end up mystifying the process and talking in these in these broad sort of archaic terms, and then we wonder why, you know, most people don't really respond, even though if you break it down for them, they might, or if you tell stories that illustrate the point. Like I can, I can get up in a lecture, and I can give you thirty minutes worth of data that proves that there is systemic racism in law enforcement. I can, I can do it. I can show you the studies. I can give you the data on the war on drugs. I can do all of that. And 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 if you are one of those people who responds well to quantitative data and facts, well, all right, maybe that'll maybe that'll be impressive to you. Um, but if you're one of those people who, like most folks, is not persuaded by facts according to the evidence, is not changed by data, um, it's not going to work. It'll make me feel really smart that I presented it to you and that you don't have a rebuttal for whatever that's worth. But but I could stand up in the same 20 minutes or 30 minutes or five minutes, for that matter, that I spent telling you a bunch of data, I could tell you, well, here's how I know that there's systemic racism in criminal justice, because if there weren't, I'd be in prison right now for the same drug activity that lots of black folks disproportionately are doing time for, because I did all those same things. You know, yeah, that dude that lived next to me at Monroe Hall was a drug dealer, but uh, but I used his product. And I was around this product a lot, and I've been around other similar products. I've done plenty of things. I, I counted it up one time. Like all the stuff that I've done, you know, I could have gotten a hard time, like like pretty serious, nothing violent, but a lot of nonviolent crime. It could have gotten me a lot of time. And and yet I was not suspected, therefore I was not detected, therefore I was not arrested, 
therefore I was not prosecuted or incarcerated. If there weren't white privilege in the justice system, I would not be the one giving the talk to you today. I would not be the one on your show right now. I would not be the one that wrote this book or that book because they're not going to let you Skype in all those talks from prison. You know, you're not going to be able to do a Zoom call from cell block C. I mean, you know, you've got to of all places. Right, right, right. right. Oh, exactly. I've been through that with right here in the neighborhood before my back and spine got in such a mess where I'm not doing much walking anymore. But I was walking the neighborhood one night. Well, the city of Ruston does not police right. the dog problem around here, quite frankly, because there's not enough personnel. I think they yeah. had two people working half time. Well, that's not enough people, quite frankly. Right. And so I was, I've been dog bitten a couple of times and thankfully had on enough clothes where I was bitten where it, it, I mean, I felt the pressure, but I didn't have any kind of a wound. I, you know, I got bruised pretty bad. Yeah, but I yeah. had a dog bite me on my left Achilles tendon one night, and another one bit me somewhere else. But yeah. anyhow, like I had on thick socks, so it didn't really, like I said, I felt the pressure. So I started walking with a broken mop handle or broom handle. Well, one night, you know, about three or four uh, cop cars came rolling up, and five or six cops hopped out of the car, you know, and it was absurd. Right. But if I had been black, they would have probably beaten a snot out of me and maybe killed me. I oh, wanted sure. to know why I was walking with a pole, and I made the little short top, and I, it was the only one really engaging me. I said, hold your hand out. I said, nah, and I maybe held his hand out. I, you know where I'm talking about. The, the, there's a muscle, but also a bunch of nerve endings between your index finger and your thumb. Yeah. It's a pressure point where you can really hurt somebody by pressing me, and I pressed him real, you know, he, he kind of went when I pressed him. I said, a dog bit me harder than that. A dog can produce around three or 400 pounds per square inch. I know, I've always, right. always had dogs. They can right. produce about three or 400 pounds per square inch of crushing power. And I told him, I said, a little dog, like we used to have at that time, can break a chicken bone. I said, are you hearing what I'm telling you? I said, a little dog on your ring finger, which is about the size of a chicken leg, they can snap a chicken leg in two with their jaws. I said, sure. that dog didn't bite me that hard, but bit me hard. Now, if I'd been black, what do you think he'd have done to me? He would have right. probably, beat, he and his, you know, colleagues would have beaten the smile out of me. Oh, sure. And all I was doing was walk around the neighborhood, and they got a report that, quote, a mad person was walking around the neighborhood. I mean, some idiot called into the police. Oh, they, yeah, they said I was walking around with a crowbar. It was a broken broom handle or a mop handle. Right. This is more of this business about not hearing people's stories, but also about not getting the facts. Right. Before they start spreading a bunch of rumors, right. engaging in sure. scaremongering and that kind of thing, and it's, it's, it's outrageous. So imagine that on a grand scale for black, because for black for sure. or Latino for that matter, you live with this kind of stuff day in day out. Yeah, for sure. This is your daily reality. Or if you're native, when my grand, I, I pointed out on the show before, my great grandma, great great grandma, was Louisiana Choctaw. Well, imagine what those people went through. Because we yeah. don't hear a lot about this in this area, but if you go out in the Southwest, particularly right. out in New Mexico, Arizona, California, in Nevada, you hear a lot of that kind of stuff of discrimination against native folks. Right. Uh, right. So you know, these cops are so trigger happy already, and a lot yeah. of them have fascistic ten- uh, tendencies. Quite frankly. So, again, imagine being somebody black, walking the street, and all they're doing is walking for their health because they want to get outdoors, and then a bunch of come rolling up on them. And do what they did to that poor fellow in Washington, Paris, with Ronald Green, and they beat that man to death. Yes. Yeah, for sure. They literally beat that man to death, you know? For sure. And I think your point about um, how it, anecdotes can get through when data can't because we don't think in terms of large numbers. I think that was the power of the George Floyd incident. Uh, Like there was this camera being held steady for what, seven minutes while this 
cop just methodically choked the the uh, George Floyd to death, and sure. he, he didn't even look angry. It was just like cold, dead eyes, yeah. jaws, you know. And his um, colleagues stood by and watched him, and keep yeah. in mind, and they kept. I mean, so they were complicit in in the killing. And we can all see it, um, whereas you can't see a thousand. But you can see right. one. Right. 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 I mean, yeah, you can, you can, I mean, you know, I think it was, unfortunately, I think it was Stalin who said it, and I hate to quote Stalin, right? But the, <laughs> the, the I don't, I don't, I don't make a habit of it, but, uh, I think it was him that said, uh, you know, that one death is a tragedy, a million is a statistic or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it's true. Like, you know, I, I, I can, I can, it's going to be far more effective if you see a story play out or at least if you hear a, a personal story as opposed to some disembodied set of data in a database collected by the Washington Post that shows X percent of black people versus X percent of white people were brutalized by police this year. Like that, that, that's, that, that data is highly relevant, but I'm not going to get you to see its relevance if I don't get you hooked in with a story first. And so I'm not suggesting progressive people abandon facts and data and just roll with narrative. But I'm saying you got to have, for every, for every fact that you want somebody to know, you had better have a story that illustrates that fact. Exactly. It makes it you, concrete, yeah. Yeah, because if you don't have a story or a narrative that makes a fact come to life, you're basically, I mean, I, look, I, I've written eight books. One of them, my memoir, White Like Me, is just stories about race and whiteness in America, and the other seven are either fact-driven or heavily footnoted uh, books that talk about a lot of the same subjects. Now, which of those books do you think has had the biggest impact on people? Well, I can tell you because they tell me. So all the really heavily footnoted ones, I get people say nice things about them. They say things like, oh, that book really helped me with my research paper, or oh, that book really helped me... You know, that book really helped me win a debate with my roommate. Well, okay, I'm, you know, glad I could be of assistance. But but for white like me, because it's personal stories, I have folks say, that book changed my life. That book changed the way that I think about this. It changed my career trajectory. It changed my relationship to other people in my life. Like, you know, and so, and yet they're really talking about the same subject, but they're talking about them in fundamentally different ways. And so yeah. one of the reasons that I think we just need to move we really need progressive people to learn the power of storytelling and narratives and and qualitative data, not just quantitative data. Because as long as we stay stuck in the quantitative, I think we're we're fighting the other side. The other side knows how to tell stories. Their stories right. might be might be bullshit. Like, you know, telling stories about welfare queens in the eighties and the late seventies by Ronald Reagan, he was lying about that stuff. Sure. But but man, it was effective. It was really and he listened. He was a genius with the anecdote. Like he introduced the um, the now it's a tradition. Every president who's followed it, the State of the Union address every year, he would have four or five people to stand up and be the exemplar of whatever policy he's pushing at that part of the speech. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, and I and I just don't think that that the left has really ever been able to do a great job of that i think i think barack obama is is someone and not really obviously on the left but you know like people democrats and liberals even obama was better at it hard uh, moderate yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, hard obama, obama was better at the storytelling piece he, he was pretty good at it 
Um, Bill Clinton was actually pretty good at it, you know, and and I'm glad you like my stories. I tell you, right, and those and those guys were able to connect based on their ability, though they're very stylistically very different in some ways. They both understood the power of narrative, and and I think that most of the time, um, Democrats as a party center left to liberal or progressive and left folks generally have, have spent way too much of our time um, doing theory and not and not doing storytelling and, or even I would say, you know, cynically enough, marketing. Like this like it's one thing the left knows sociology, but the right knows marketing. And right. frankly it's way more important to know marketing um, than it is to know sociology. and I say that as a trained sociologist. Like I, I get the value of sociology but I got news for you. Most of the time, the marketer is going to win. You know, the, the 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 left. We're like the. You think of it in high school click terms. Like the left are the debaters. Like that's the debate team, and the right are the cheerleaders. Now, right, right. right like who do you think folks want to hang out with? They don't want to hang out with the debate team because the debate team makes them feel stupid, right? Because, oh, you don't understand this theoretical thing or you don't understand this, you know, whatever. But the, but the cheerleader makes you feel good. They, they get you pepped up. They get you, you know, it's exciting. Oh, my gosh. It's, you know. And so I, we, we have to think a lot less like um, debaters and lawyers. Or if we are going to think like lawyers, think like a lawyer that's in front of an actual jury that's actually having to tell a story. At least do that, you know. Uh, I had a... Yeah, yeah. I had a moment of clarity about Stephen and my project about six months ago, and you know we're both very scholarly and come yeah. things in a certain way. And I'd been dealing with a coach who was going to be teaching a Louisiana literature that fall, and so we'd been working with him on the syllabus and stuff. And he was like, uh, or after after I got through, I was like, you know what we really need in the anthology is a coach. <laughs> Somebody that can motivate the people to do the thing because I don't know how to motivate people. Right, right, right. I mean that really is important, and I and I just don't think uh, I think too often times you know the 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 left it's already hard enough. I mean, look, fascism is just way easier than democracy, just way easier, right? Mm -hmm. So so if I'm if I'm trying to get you on my side for an authoritarian type project. Where it's the you know the maximum leader telling you what to do and 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 moving you around the chessboard that, that's just so much easier to do than actually getting a person to commit to democracy because democracy is very difficult and it's very messy and ugly and hard to do and hard to maintain. Uh, fascism is just a lot easier. So there's already a couple of strikes against progressivism or the left um, and a couple of things that run, and that's why most of human history does not. Look, most of human history does not does not say a whole lot about about the about the, the the winning power of liberatory forces. Like most of human history is not about that. Most of human history is about non liberation. Most of human history is about a handful of people trying to figure out how to gain and keep the most power. So we don't have a great track record as a species of creating anything remotely resembling democracy. Um, so, you know, we got to understand that. The odds are against us from the beginning. Part of why, though, is that we're dealing with these parts of human nature. And I don't want to say human nature is inherently reactionary, because I don't think that's true. Human nature is very mixed. But it's easier to play to the parts of human nature that are reactionary, right? It's easier well, and, and on top back. of that, it's it's, look at who was writing the Bruce, who, because you are a classicist, and Tim and I are not, but who is the person 
was it Plato? But anyhow, he's referencing democracy as being such a terrible form of governance. But, you know, who's writing that is somebody from the intellectual elite of that time, right? I mean, well, yeah, I mean, Aristotle, Aristotle said that. Is it Aristotle? Yeah. Okay. I knew it was a classical Greek writer. And the point is, again, they're part of the intellectual elite. It's not the common people who would, would not have even been literate, quite frankly. Oh, of course, of course. Uh, of but course. They, they're not writing their own story. They're having their story written about them by so-called great men. Right. Right, and and I think that that if people if people really want to create a pro democracy project, a pro liberation project, they're going to have to figure out how to appeal to that other part of human nature, not the sort of greedy, venal, violent. You know, because greed and, and and violence and aggression are parts of human nature, but so is so is community and altruism. Right? We you know when we're born mm-hmm. into our families. But most of the time, most families don't, you know, don't have a hyper-competitive ethos where the the parent tells the kid, well, you know, we'll feed you tonight if you do all your chores and if you get that grade and if you do this, that, and the other. Like, most of the time, you get fed, right? Unless you're in an incredibly, horribly dysfunctional home that wants to be abusive by not feed, by withholding love, withholding food on the basis of, of what they think of you in that moment. But most people... Like in a family, there's a communal spirit to that. There's, there's, you know, no, you're not going to get a better helping of, of, of potatoes tonight or whatever because you got an A and your sister got a B. Like we don't do that. So, so part of human nature is collective. Part of human nature is communal. Part of human nature is altruistic and sharing. And part of human nature is the op- is the opposite of that. And the problem is the right knows how to play to their side very, very effectively. And we aren't nearly as good at at at, at playing to our side. As effectively, and that that is a marketing issue, that is a narrative issue, that is a strategy issue. It isn't an intelligence issue. It is a you know understanding how to get out of your head a little bit, you know, and and to think of it in less abstract um, terms. I think the left liberals on over to the left, all we all have an unnecessary confidence and an unnecessary faith in the power of pure reason. Right. And, um, and and what history, what human history, not just American history, what human history tells us is that reason and rationality aren't really what motivate humans and 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 carry the day most of the time. And we, well, can and, um, but it's true. one other factor that we could mention is economic, because there are no billionaires who are just pouring money into the uh, uh, left wing echo chamber to uh, produce louder echoes. But you know, they're bit, you know Fox doesn't have to turn a profit. Uh, their right. existence is necessary for the political agenda of their right-wing backers, whereas anything we do, uh, right. you know, left-wing uh, billionaires, to the degree there are any at all, are yeah. very stingy well, very, with their money. Like a George Soros, but he's, you know, he's the lone voice, practically. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And the guy that ran briefly... Uh, for president or try to get the Democratic nomination. What's his name? Is it Tom something or other? Tom Steyer? I mean, he's a billionaire yeah. too, but I mean, yeah. you know, he's he's more establishment. I mean, he is a liberal of a sort, but he's more established. Yeah. And he's not, he's yeah. certainly not a lefty. Yeah, sure. No, for sure. For sure. And like uh, the right would have never allowed Air America to die if we have to keep it on life support for 20 years to terms of profit. We'll keep doing that. Uh, oh, left, just left them, you know. We got a U.S. senator out of it, Al Franken. We got Rachel Maddow came through there. You know, it's just for the short amount of time it was around, it had a profound effect on America. Uh, yeah, which may be why it 
<laughs> it was closed down. Uh, the real reason. Uh, yeah, could be, could be. I mean, I, I, you know, I have no doubt. I think that that um, the right. I mean, I noticed it um, a lot in the in the mid '90s when I started going out and and speaking. Um, and I, and let me tell you, before I say this, I'm going to have to go in a second because I'm, I'm okay. short of time. Um, <laughs> but I remember going out in the in the mid '90s and um, and I would be asked uh, every now and then, I think eight times in all. To debate Dinesh D'Souza at various oh places, and, uh, and this is when Dinesh was still a Reagan Republican before he went full MAGA, which he did for purely uh, economic reasons. I mean, let me just be yeah. clear: he's a complete grifter. Um, but but Dinesh, you know, was someone who he had a best-selling book, and the right had, you know, he'd, he'd been ensconced at the. At, at one of the big foundations at the American Enterprise Institute, excuse me, and he uh, and he was getting all this money from various folks supporting his you know senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute or whatever, and the the left had no comparable infrastructure for that. Yeah, we had our think tanks, uh, Institute for Policy Studies, uh, other you know groups, but they didn't have nearly the kind of backing, even among wealthy. There are plenty of wealthy progressives. This idea that oh, there aren't any wealthy lefties or, or progressive people to put money into stuff like that. That's absolute nonsense. It's especially nonsense now. There is money. Soros is the main source of it, but there's more money. There are people on the left, and certainly liberal and progressive people, if not hard left, who have money. They just don't spend it on this because they don't understand the value of it. But when right. I would go out and debate Dinesh, it, it, it was hilarious. My, my rule was I will not get paid less than him. Like, you're going to have to pay us the same. And... He was charging at the time like $7,000 a pop. Well, there was no way in hell that the school could afford to pay us both seven, and I knew that. But, you know, I, so what they would do is they'd go back to Dinesh, and they'd say, well, um, we only have enough to pay you 2000 or whatever. Now, to me, you know, $2,000 for a speech, I was like, hey, sign me up. But to him, <laughs> to him, we, to him. First, I need to find these people. <laughs> right. But, but, to, but, to, but to Dinesh, he was like, well, that's outrageous. Da, 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 da. But then what he would do, and this goes to the right-wing infrastructure, he would turn around, he'd take his 2000 from whatever college it was, and then he would turn around and go to his corporate benefactors in the so-and-so foundation or the so-and-so foundation or the other so-and-so foundation, and they would give him the additional 5000 so, in effect, what was happening was Dinesh and all these right-wingers, they had, like, the equivalent of a crazy uncle with an unlimited bank account. Right, and, exactly. And, so it's, subsidy, yeah. and it's like going to it. Right. It's, the market didn't bear it, right? The market that they, that they talked about didn't bear the price because the college was like, we can't afford that. So we can't do that. And so the market failed, but you went behind the market, went to your crazy uncle slash whatever foundation that is, and got Sugar the other daddy. <laughs> Right. So, I mean, it, it just the whole the whole thing is an example, though, of how the right nurtured that. And, and then that's why all these many years later, they have so much power politically. And we still find ourselves fighting from behind because liberal and left wing folk, we, we spread our money so thin. And the right was like, no, no, we're going to concentrate it right here. We're going to concentrate it on an intellectual and activist infrastructure, or we're going to put our money in the Federalist Society, and in 30 years, we will take over the courts. And everybody was like, you're wasting your money. It didn't work in. You haven't been able to overturn Roe yet. You haven't been able to do this, that. Well, all that's happened now, and that is because they played the long game 
And progressive folks are like, if we don't get results in like four years, we're out. Yeah, yeah, oh, right, right. You know, and money never. Yeah, the Cokes, the Cokes were notorious for that. Charles and David Coke. I mean, they, oh yeah, they put the they sunk the money. I'm a little old, just a little older than you. You're you're my younger sister's age. So when you're at Tulane, you know, starting your education, I'm in seminary at Harvard Divinity. And so I'm seeing the same kind of activist stuff like up there. It's pretty hilarious where oh, yeah. somebody built a rickety, <laughs> built a, it looked like a clapboard structure there in the, in the, in the uh, quad there at Harvard. And we'd have to pass through there to get to the north, north side of the campus where the Divinity campus was. Right. This thing called, this is hilarious. They called it the, Ivory Tower of, of Harvard, and it was like it looked like clapboard. I mean, it was really right. neat looking. But their point was, this was when South Africa was trying to fall finally because of apartheid, and they were right. talking about Harvard turning a blind eye and a deaf ear to human suffering right. uh, and under the apartheid regime. You know, so right. I mean, I would see this on a daily basis, and we'd sit there just kind of rolling our eyes at these people. Right, of course. <laughs> because they, yeah, they were. I mean, their, their hearts were in the right place, but they were talking a lot, not doing anything. That's the problem. They weren't doing right. anything. And sure. a guy you've heard of, I know Chris Hedges, uh, yeah. was up there before I was about seven or eight years, and he talked about that at great length. I mean, they were, you know, it was a lot of feel goods, but not a lot of action. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and you've got to have action united to the, you know, and, and that goes with the story once again. You've got to have people who are willing to tell a compelling, compelling story, but then go out and live the story. Absolutely. They have to, I mean, that's, that's the whole point, really, or part of the point of Judaism and Christianity and even Islam is living that story, whatever that story. Right. And, you know, Bruce and I are old seminarians, and right. that's what you do as a practitioner of your faith, whether it's Protestant, Catholic, you know, Jewish, uh, Muslim, or, or Buddhist, or whatever, you're living a story. Yeah. You're living, you're not just telling it, you're living. And if you can unite the telling to the living, then you've got a, a pretty winning combination, quite right, probably. for sure. For sure, absolutely. Um, that's that's one of our patented rants. <laughs> but yeah. I'm a big believer in, in doing that kind of thing. If you want some real something really fun, then not, you know, tell the story, but then live it, and it should be inspiring enough or compelling enough that people say, "Wow, I relate." I mean, like you were saying right. earlier, it's got to be relatable. Right. Right. Absolutely. I was absolutely. just wondering, since we're in election week, what your feelings and ideas are about. And the way the elections have been going, which is, you know, Democrats may lose the House, but it's by no means a tidal wave that we thought it would be. Right. Um, well, I'll give you, I'll give you that really quick, and then I really do have to, I do have to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think what is demonstrated here is that, and there are a couple things. One is, is that, um, is that most Americans are not particularly, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing or a good thing, it's just a thing. Like, most Americans aren't particularly ideological um, in either direction, and so they can bounce around and do from one election to another. You'll have independent so-called voters go one way in one election, they'll go another way in another. You can have voters who, you know, although I think this phenomenon was a little bit overblown. You had people that voted for Obama in 08, voted for Trump in 2016 or whatever. Um, and, and to me, that doesn't make sense. And maybe to you, it wouldn't make sense. And maybe, to, you know, people that, that think in sort of consistent philosophical or ideological terms, that's like, that just is, that's like a unicorn. 
But the truth is most people aren't really keyed in. Most people aren't paying attention the way that others of us are because we're just weird that way. And so part of progressives really figuring out how to make inroads in the electorate so that the right doesn't regain power in the way that it, it well, in the way that we feared that they might, is you've got to figure out how to speak to people in terms that aren't particularly ideological or rooted in their deep understanding of theory and politics, but that actually speak to some of their primary concerns. And I think what the what the Democrats did this time, putting aside whether it's really left or center or liberal, whatever, I don't even care about that right now. I'm just glad that what happened happened. But, but um, what they figured out was that um, you can appeal to people on the basis of some really felt needs and concerns around the notion of freedom and liberty, whether it's bodily autonomy or, you know, whether it is, is uh, the, you know, try, it's been a, a big resurgence of union activity and labor and, and, and labor organizing in the last several years. Right. People fighting for freedom and liberty in the workplace, you know, the actual freedom to determine their own workplace uh, conditions, like those kinds of appeals. Um, I think actually can work. And I think for a lot of young people, they work. And I think for folks of color, they work. It clearly doesn't work for most white folks still, but it works for, for others and just enough white folks to, to carry the day. And so I think that's the real lesson. It isn't about saying, oh, you know, the Democrats should either go hard left or go center. Like, I don't, I don't agree with either of those camps. Anybody who thinks that it's as simple as what Bernie and AOC happen to say, they're not paying attention to this country. They don't really know this country. Most of America is not AOC's district. Most of America ain't Burlington, friggin' Vermont, right? Like most of America is not going to do what either of, is not going to get behind what either of them are saying. But most of America is also not where the sort of neoliberal centrist folks in the party are. It's a, it, the country is a very broad and diverse place where most people are not that ideological at all. Most people are not going to be consistently left or consistently center. So you have to figure out how to craft your message and figure out how to hold together these really uneasy coalitions that are going to include people that are clearly on the left and that are going to include people that are not. And and so, you know, that's how you defeat the right. My main concern right. is defeating fascism. My main concern is not yeah, defeating, yeah. you know, neoliberal. I mean, I understand the need to defeat neoliberalism, but right now we got to deal with fascism. It's that's like, right. When David, Duke, when David Duke was running, and I had lefty friends that said, like, oh, but Jay Bennett Johnston is, you know, in the pocket of Exxon. I'm like, just shut up. Like David Duke's a Nazi. I don't. I don't give a damn. Like it's like Jay Bennett Johnston can give foot massages to the CEO of Exxon, and I'm still voting for him. And if you won't, you're actually an evil person. Like it's just that sense. Like Edward Edwards was not anybody's idea of a real progressive. But I'll be damned if I was going to like. Well, you know, I could vote for him or I could vote for Duke. I think I'll just sit home. Like just shut vote up. for the crook. It's important. You have to, right, <laughs> or Clay Higgins is the same story. I mean, they're right. They're. Yeah, I mean, my parents lived through that. They, my dad was an airman, or in what became the Air Force, it was U.S. Army Air Corps. Right. He lived through that. He so he you know didn't go through a death camp or anything like that. But he was drafted right. against that and despised fascism, despised right. Nazism. And right. I told the story here recently about a guy who was working at the then ammunition plant over in Mendon. It's long since been closed. It's where that lady they were making flares. Right. And there was this guy was not German-American. He was actually German. And he yeah. was working over there. 
And they told him, well, if you think that, that Hitler's so, and they cussed him out and said, if you think Hitler is so blank blank, and I won't say this on, on the show what he was, but the, what they said he was, they said, if you think he's so great, then you move your damn ass back to, to Germany. And they either threatened to beat the guy up or they did beat him up. One of the right. And he was a, he was a full-on Nazi. And my right. dad and about five or six North Louisiana hillbillies and a couple of guys from South Arkansas were going to beat the snot out of the guy for that. Right. This is around right. 19, you know, 38 or 39. I mean, it's just, right. you know, right and in the run up to point World where War you II. just, yeah, you, you have to, you, you, you have to, you have to deal with the enemies that are right in front of you. And I understand the bigger, broader issues that we face that are not just about overt fascism. But I promise you, if the fascists win, you'll get none of that accomplished. Exactly. Right. I mean, you absolutely won't defeat neoliberalism if the fascists win. You'll you'll beg for the return of neoliberals if the fascists win. Um, so so let's not play games and 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 do this sort of you know thing that some on the left do, which is like has to get worse before it gets better. No, that's bullshit. When it gets worse, it just gets worse. Exactly. It just gets worse. It doesn't. It doesn't lead. If you look at any revolution in history, revolutions don't happen just because things got really really bad. And in fact. Most of the time, revolutions happen when things are starting to get a little better, right? right? Because people have breathing room. People actually have the room to make, you know, they're not just up against, like, base survival needs. If I'm up against base survival, I don't have time to go to the barricades. I don't have time to go to your protests. I don't have time to pick up a megaphone. I'm just trying to feed my kids. Now, if you get me some reform, and we all know that reform isn't enough, but what it does is it gives me just enough hope that, things can actually change. So now I have time to get active. And now I have an attitude that says, oh, okay, now we're making moves. And that's how you get actual transformative change. And so I think sometimes we, we forget that and we think, well, maybe, you know, once we, once we get fascism, then we'll rebel against fascism. No, the fascists will just kill and jail y'all. Like, that's, that's what they'll do. And uh, I think Biden's genius is certainly not that he's a great communicator, but right. for a lot of the last two years, he's been changing the material life, the material uh, situation of a lot of Americans. We've got checks. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we have a record number of students coming out to vote as young people. That is not unrelated to $10,000 of debt relief. Right. You know, well, I think what people that realize, uh, yeah, I think what people realize, too, about the, the, the economic situation that I think maybe people didn't give them enough credit for and I might not have either, is, yeah, you know, inflation hurts people a lot. But if, if, if I'm paying more for a gallon of milk, but I've got a job that allows me to pay for that milk, I feel a lot better than if the milk's cheap, but I don't have a job to buy any anyway. You know right. what I mean? And right. so, so if post-pandemic, and it isn't necessarily Biden's, it's not anything Biden did. I mean, part of this is there's just a lot of things that have to do with the pandemic that Frankly, Trump, you know, or Biden, it wasn't really about them. It's just some stuff that happened. And, and, and although Trump made the pandemic infinitely worse, a lot of that dislocation and stuff would have happened if Hillary had been president. Same thing. I mean, a lot of, you know, do I think she would have taken action faster? And yeah, but I mean, still a lot of people would have died, right? This was just something that was going to happen, unfortunately, and it wasn't going to be entirely prevented by having a Democratic office. That said, once you get to a place where the supply chains are kinked up, and you know, the, and and production is just sort of getting back online, and shipping is 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 backed up, and you've got companies that are taking unfair advantage and profit seeking, obviously, out of it. You got all that going on. If I'm 
if I'm looking at, well, yeah, you know, you, you sent me a check and maybe those checks might have had some inflationary impact, I would say it's very small. And most of the research says it was very small. A very small part of the current inflationary pie was the result of the stimulus. And if it was the result of the stimulus at all, it was the stimulus that Donald Trump signed the checks for. Like that would have been the first one. And, and you know, and, and, and the Republicans didn't mind that one because they wanted that one. They all did. But but. Even if you say that that stimulus might have impacted inflation, well, it also let my family stay alive for a few months. You know, it allowed me to pay my bills for a, a month. It allowed me to do this, that, and the other. Or the fact that you that you were able to freeze a mortgage payment, or the fact that you were able to, you know, whatever, like like these, or that you froze rent for a, or, or evictions for a period of time, not long enough. But but the fact that these things happened kept me afloat. So yeah, it sucks that I'm having to pay more for gas and it sucks that I'm having to pay more for turkey or whatever at the you know sandwich meat. But but the truth is most people understand that I won't say most people. I will say enough people understand this that it did not lead to the kind of wipeout that the right thought it would lead to. They really honestly thought like voters were going to go to the polls and be like, well yeah, I know my freedom and liberties are at stake, but I really want that cheap gas. And yeah, there's some people like that, and that's sort of concerning. But but the reality is most people are able to understand two or three things at once, you know, or at least a lot of people right. are. And what yeah. they understood was, yeah, things aren't great, but they're better than they would have been. And 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 so they did, you know, the right thing. Now, what will happen two years from now, four years from now? Who knows? You know, that's for us to decide, obviously. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And yeah, one more really time, if you, could, if you could give us the name of your book, you want to... Uh, well, there's a, bunch of, there's a bunch <laughs> of them. I mean, the latest one uh, in December of 2020, the essay collection called Dispatches from the Race War, uh, covers the Obama years through the through the Trump years, uh, right up into the end of 2020. It includes some, some COVID-related uh, essays that I wrote. Um, White Like Me is so, one of them. That one's been so out. So is your thesis... That we're not post-racial. Well, I think that's good. <laughs> that would be the thesis of all eight books in one way or another. Right? So people can yeah. find those on Amazon. They can find my essays at medium.com. They can find me for at least another week or two on Twitter at Tim Jacob Wise uh, on Twitter. And uh, I guess it looks like I get to keep my blue check on Twitter, which is nice. <laughs> that's that's your Elmer, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. What was the title of your memoir again? Uh, it's called White Like Me. Okay, great. And that's just, you know, you're taking a book that was black like me from years ago right. and uh, right. putting a twist to it. So that's look for exactly that. The, yes, indeed. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Tim. This has been a great yeah, talk. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun. Please send me a, a link or whatever when y'all post it. We'll do. It'll be a bit down the road, maybe after Christmas. Uh, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Right. Thanks so much. All we'll right, y'all. Take care. You take bye. care. All right, All right. bye. We want to thank Tim Wise for coming on our podcast, uh, chatting to us with us about his work and uh, really his uh, his values about why he does this work. You know, uh, um, it's important to try to push things in the right direction. To, you know, try to use our influence for good. And so it's nice to see somebody who has devoted himself to that fight. Yeah, and it is an ongoing fight. I mean, just oh my, you, yeah. that, you know, you cannot think, well, in fact, this mistake was made mostly by people on the right saying, you know, when President Obama or Senator Obama was elected in 2008, well, 
you know, racism is dead in America. And of course, we found out that it was, you know, came roaring back, so to speak. Um, yeah, so, it never went away, but it really came, you know, it really. It was, it was like I keep saying, it was dormant, but it became active again, like the virus that it is. Yeah, it's been very, you know, we've been in a really epic fit of it ever since. Uh, first the Tea Party and then uh, the, uh, you know, Donald Trump being the birther in chief and the MAGA crew. And um, it's just been much more open. Uh, the racism and and all these these related type groups like the sovereign citizens movement and the posse comitatus and the christian identity movement all that you know all those movements have or have or are in varying degrees have been various kinds of white nationalist type and sometimes white separatist type groups you know oh yeah and, uh, and a lot of them are very violent too like like we've seen with the the recent convictions including uh as we as we record tonight some convictions just this week of some more of the Oath Keepers or Three Percenters or whatever from the, the insurrection on January 6th so <clears throat> of last year. Yeah, they're getting so, kookier by the minute, you know. Well, and they're getting more violent, too. They're, they they're, are. They're yeah. all, you know, they, one of the guys that they convicted, in fact, if you've seen the pictures, was the guy from up here, our neighbors to the north in Arkansas, and he was the one that got into Pelosi's office and had his feet propped up on the desk. Oh, right yeah, young. yeah, yeah. And so they got him, you know, whatever his He's name is. He's laughing now, him. dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's going to be a, yeah, yeah, the federal prison is always a funny and, and amusing place, you know, you'll yeah. find out. Yeah. So go and laugh, laugh your, laugh your, you know what, off when you get in federal prison. Um, but yeah, this is why the work of people like Tim, to, to, you know, circle back to Tim's work, this is why his work is so valuable, but it's also essential. Um, yeah. The, the problem never went away, and it's getting worse now rather better. So we need to you know, stand up for what's right and be willing to keep going with the, just with in it for the long term, um, which I didn't realize going into it that, oh yeah, this fight has been going on almost since the birth of the Republic. And, um, you know, it, it will probably go on to the end of the Republic. It's just always a, a tension within our system, uh, which was based on racism and sexism and uh, genocide and a lot of other things and it's just really hard to um, take something that came from that and turning it into something else so, yeah well for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast I'm Bruce McGee and I'm Steve Payne again we certainly want to thank Tim for this really critical and necessary work that he does and that other people <clears throat> like him do so again thank you Tim uh, we also want to thank all of you for tuning in this week uh you know if you are interested in doing this kind of work yourself there are plenty of groups online uh plenty of groups out there that you can join up and again do this very valuable work but again thank you tim thanks to all of you for listening in and we hope that you'll join us uh, for next week's edition of the louisiana anthology podcast bye for now